Um, so is China. China is the same size as the continent of Europe is approaching $18 trillion. And for sure, yeah, um, the Chinese yuan um, could be a valid competitor to the dollar, um, but under the following circumstances. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Bernadelstein. I'm joined as always by founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Wiener. We are joined by a very special guest today, Hugh Hendry. Hugh is the asset capitalist, the macro artist, the market surfer, the wizard of finance, and he's joining us today on the Gold Exchange Podcast. Hugh, how are you doing? Heavens, I'm I'm overwhelmed by that description. Uh, I'm good, thank you. Very good. Hugh, I want, I've listened to a bunch of your interviews now, and you've said there are about five people who understand the complexity of money. Now, I don't want you to name names, even though I've got this government suit on, uh, but I want to posit that Keith might be the sixth person who understands money. We're going to find out today. So, Hugh, let's start with you. The banking industry has had a lot of turmoil in the past couple of months, but I've had a lot of people tell me, Ben, everything is totally fine. The banking system is back to normal. Sure, SVB went down. Sure, a couple of these crypto banks went down. But if your dollars are FDI-sured, everything is fine. Is, is Do you agree with that statement that everything is fine, Hugh? I mean, it's fine if, if, you, if you have no conscious thinking mind. Yeah, um, I kind of, whatever, you know. I mean, it's just it's preposterous. Um, okay, how, how do I summon the energy? I've done my Elon pause. Um, we've had uh, four historically very significant um, financial institutions, significant with regard to the uh, the size of their asset base, um, and they are uh, no longer with us. Um, and that has occurred across jurisdiction you know um we had a, a, a major swiss a, a bank deemed to be sy- systemic uh or important you know important significantly important to the you know the overall economy um is gone and we had what three u.s banks um and that is that is before we get a recession uh, typically banks are nailed by the unexpected arrival of an economic cor- correction which um is a shock that requires um higher and higher credit charges um and also leads to a crisis of, um, of confidence in their collateral and so other banks withdraw um so it's um it is with some concern that we've already witnessed four banks um disappear um however it's within the historical precedent um, we've heard all of these things before we had bear sterns um, vaporize in february of 2008 we were assured it was a one-off um if you're of that type you know there's nothing i can say that will uh, change your your mind Keith, i want to jump to you real quick uh a concept you've brought up in your theory of interest and prices is stateful which is that these banks, they can't just turn around one day and offer you what the Fed is offering at, let's say, 5%. They've got a whole portfolio of assets that they have to slowly, over time, deleverage. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so 
you know, we've had a falling interest rate for about four decades and now suddenly rising. So everybody expects the bank to offer all depositors, not just the new depositors at the margin, the new higher rate. If T-bills are paying 5%-ish, then why can't my bank offer me four and a half? Well, they have this portfolio acquired over many, many years, if not decades, that's probably paying them, you know, under 2%. And uh, that doesn't go away. The Fed can change its policy inputs, as they would call it, but doesn't change the uh, the state of the uh, of the bank's not just balance sheet, but its uh, its average portfolio, um, you know, yield. And um, it's not an easy problem to work your way out of. I mean, one by one, those assets roll off as they hit maturities, and then the bank can buy assets at, at higher yields, you know, bit by bit. So that's I think one of the contributory prongs to the coming crisis is um, there's a very strong incentive for people to pull their deposits out of the banks, namely, in this particular case, namely higher yields to be had in something else. And uh, it's all gonna you know, feed on itself. Hugh, I wanna jump to you. I am holding a weapon of mass destruction right here. It's called yeah, an too. iPhone. Me too. So can you explain to people what it means when you say that the iPhone is a weapon of mass destruction when it comes to banking? Well, I mean, just to pick up on and that very valid observation. Um, so um, this Fed tightening cycle is different from all its predecessors. It's different in terms of the uh, the rapidity and magnitude of the hike. Uh, the Fed has never done this before, and for good reason. First of all, it is the regulator of the banking system, and therefore uh, it is beholden upon it to be wise to the notion that the repricing of the asset book of a bank, like you said, takes you know 18 months. And so the Fed typically is very cautious um, and very transparent. It's going to raise rates. It's, it's notified the banks in advance, and it typically raises 25 basis points. When, we, when the economy began to take on momentum after the NASDAQ collapse at the end of the previous uh, century, uh, it was a a very long drawn out sequence of 25 basis point increases, which enabled the banks to reprice. Uh, that has not been the case. Um, and that is crushing the net interest margin of the banks. But more significantly, it called into question the conceit and the arrogance of what was a well-formed argument before we had this black swan, a black swan being the recording of something which has never happened before. Okay. Um, which was, you know, the the the, the rapidity of the, the Fed's movement. So the the conceit was that there were these held maturity treasury portfolios, um, and you did not have to mark them to market. Um, and we were working to your point about these weapons of mass destruction before uh, online banking um, came around. A bank run would maybe be 5% of the deposits being pulled in the first day. You know, you have to go with your, your passport. You've got to be in a queue. They purposely go slower. Um, with SVB, I think before they closed it, we were up to about 75% of the deposits having been pulled. So anyway, th this is the point. Uh, banking, um, the banking model, Humpty Dumpty, is broken and Humpty Dumpty will not be put back together again because you no longer have the presumption of inert, uh, passive 
deposits. And so as a funding mechanism for these long-dated risk assets, um, that model needs a profound reworking. Um, and that's where we are today. We, we, we don't know the new model, model 2.0 for the banking industry. Um, and in the fullness of time, however, we will get a revelation. Keith, I want to send it your way. Uh, the banks were engaging in duration mismatch. They had short-term deposits, and those deposits can go faster than ever with mobile banking. Do you think that maybe banks will no longer engage in duration mismatch? They've learned their lesson? <laughs> if, I, if I was a betting man, um, I would bet that um, the regulators will come up with some sort of fix, fix being doing the wrong thing in order to um, enable something like that. I mean, what the bank should be doing, uh, and I've written about this for many years, is max the duration of the deposit to the to the asset, right? So if you want to buy a 10-year bond, sell a 10-year CD. But we've spiraled down in, uh, you know, in our monetary system where there's obviously no demand for 10-year CDs. Um, so you know the banks just figure, right, they'll just get away with funding it with demand deposits and all of their formulas and rules say everything's fine. You add to that, uh, I think you said a hubris cue of, uh, oh, we'll just write it down as, as um, mark to mature, hold to maturity, which by the way was a fix coming out of the last um, crisis. A lot of folks felt that uh, mark to market exacerbated, if not caused the crisis, at least exacerbated it. Let's give the banks the ability to um, hold to maturity. Well, it, it should be an axiom that even if you write something that's, you can write something that's false in your books and uh, get away with that for a while, but eventually there's a reckoning. And uh, you can declare your intentions to the stars. We're going to hold this forever, right? But, you know, circumstances may force you otherwise. To me, you know, I, I look at, um, you know, online banking, not as a weapon of mass destruction, but rather the removal of friction. That previously, if I wanted to move my deposit from one bank to another, there's a certain amount of friction, as as you said. And I, I remember those days, you know, you had to get in your car and actually go to the bank. And um, in those days, bankers' hours were not like normal nine to five. You know, you had to show up before 3 p.m., I think it was, uh, you know, in those days. And, you know, it was kind of a pain. And I mean, unless you really thought losses were imminent, you know, people didn't do it. If they thought losses were imminent, then there'd be a line around the block. But um, otherwise, you know, it's much slower. There's a lot of friction. Now we've taken the friction out and we find out that um, freed up of friction, people will, you know, the herd will move away from whatever bank is rumored to be the next unsound one. And they're all unsound. Um, and, uh, you know, the other observation I was going to make, the problem with Silicon Valley Bank wasn't that the asset was bad. It was simply the market price, the volatility of the price. There wasn't actually a credit impairment. There were treasury bonds. Wait until the recession when there's actual impairment. I'm reading now there's 20 hotels. One hotel in San Francisco just handed the uh, keys back to the bank. There's 20 more queued up, you know, ready to go when their maturities hit. Um, none of them can make any money in the in the present environment. What does that do? To, I don't know which banks are the uh, mortgage holders on those hotels, but what does that do? And is there another bank run? And this thing just, you know, feeds on itself. So, yeah, you know, what are they going to do? Probably not end duration mismatch. They'll find some other, uh, some other fix. 
Hugh, I want to send it your way because you've made this point. The people who are running SVB, regardless of their you know, personal risk management strategy, it had nothing to do with the fact that there were just morons who were working over at SVB. They were asleep at the wheel. It had nothing to do with that. Keith, you, you mentioned that all the time. Hugh, it sounds like people are kind of blaming the specific bank, SVB, for what happened. It seems like a more broad or systemic problem. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a convenient truth to to write them off as being, you know, uh, as being an erroneous example of a badly mismanaged bank. Um, they were a successful bank um, and they suffered owing to their success. You know, they had attracted, I think, their deposit, you know, with them, I guess, the monetary creation via COVID and with the bubble in private equity, you saw their deposits, which are their liabilities, um, shroom from what, 70 billion to 180 billion? And, and they took the fateful decision uh, to invest that in long duration government bonds. Assured, assured, as Keith said, by the previous government fix uh, that they wouldn't have to mark these securities. So they were credit riskless and market price riskless. Um, but it was, you know, none of us realized just how potent uh, online banking could be in the withdrawal of money. So this is a, a threat that is shared by all. But I think what has gone uh, without um, great comment is that it was actually the JP Morgans of this world, which um, led to the very rapid demise of the bank, because um, every day regional banks um, present, um, they present a portfolio of their loans um, as collateral in going into the repo market, where they would be their counterparties would be the large money center banks, the Citigroup, the JP Morgans, et al. Um, and they offer that typically without a haircut. So, you know, they all they present, let's say, a, a billion dollars of a diversified portfolio of their loans. And in return, they will secure financing, which allows them to you know, keep their business afloat. Um, the money center banks began to, if not refuse, but insist on haircuts, which were of such a magnitude that effectively the other banks closed the funding um, of, of the institutions that failed. The same thing happened in 2008. JP Morgan was the, was the platform for the holding of the collateralized debt obligations supporting the mortgage market. And JP Morgan wrote to all clients and said, we can no longer accept this and we're closing you out. Um, every recession, every bank crisis begins with a crisis of confidence in collateral and with the confidence of counterparties. I want to talk about JP Morgan for a second. There's been some talk in the air about banning short selling. So when banks get in trouble, the real issue here, you don't understand, is that people are shorting these banks. Shorting is the problem. Shorting, if, as long as we ban that, the banking system will be fine. That crisis of confidence will no longer happen if shorts are not allowed to do what they want. Now, Keith, I see you chuckling. Let's start with you. Should we ban short selling, Keith? Uh, to me, it's just like, should we insert friction into the system? If 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 a if a bank is is fundamentally insolvent and and running into you know inability to um well, let's just say illiquid, forget insolvent for a minute. It's fundamentally unable to finance its portfolio, which is going to cause the default. Um, and then you say, okay, you're not going to short the shares. That's just inserting friction to make it harder for the share price to go down. Down it must go eventually, but you're just making it harder for that to happen and then assuring. Like the longer you hold that force back, 
that finally when it bursts free, that more it will overshoot. Um, and so, you know, mechanically, when when something is in uh, free fall in, in the market, um, the short seller provides the bid. Short seller saying, well, if it hits 40, I'll buy this much back. And if it hits 35, I'll buy this much back. And if there's no short sellers in the market, there's literally no bid. Everyone's saying sell, sell, sell. The thing can hit zero. Everyone's selling it to market and there's no bid. So you're just um, adding friction into it. And then eventually the, the damn bust loose. And then you, you get a worse drop than before. So I, I think those those sorts of proposals, I think it was Jamie Diamond who said that you shouldn't be allowed to short a bank share is at best foolishly misguided. I think Ayn Rand is shaking her finger, wagging at us, saying, you know, reality in her Russian accent, reality will come too. Hugh, what do you think? Uh, does JP Morgan have a point we should be banning the short selling? Um. You know, short selling is is essentially uh, muting the truth tellers. Um, and to Keith's point, it is inherently unstable to the market process because it actually withdraws liquidity under stressful events. You you remove a community of um, a constituency of the market that actually wants to buy on down days, and therefore you accentuate the downtrend. Um, but you know, you don't have to take Keith or my view on this. Uh, we have precedent; it has been done before. And, and everything that we're saying um, has been proven valid. You know, the, the I think it was September of 2008 and the US government and other uh, entities overseas banned the, the short sale of financial assets. They caused a terrific rally, which was then um, un, unraveled by, by, by the reality, by the truth. Uh, and the truth was, was profoundly damaging because, you know, we had removed that constituency. So, you know, it's been done, you know, um, but, can folly strike twice? Sure. Um, short selling is not a, wouldn't be something I would recommend. Um, you know, the, when you think of David Einhorn, not to, to pick on David, but he was uh, short Lehman Brothers, um, you know, a, a clarion, you know, forceful uh, observation. Um, he ended that year down because, you know, he had to close that position, you know, so, um, that what's happening is is very much macro, and there are many other ways to, to skin this cat without taking on the the risk of an irrational policy response from the U.S. government. All right, let's jump to macros. Monty Python might say for something completely different. Uh, Hugh, I have heard you say that the BRICS countries are not going to take on the U.S. dollar's hegemony. You just don't understand. And Hugh, I've heard you respond with a quote from Aerosmith saying. Dream on. There is no shot that these BRICS currencies are ever going to replace the dollar. So, Hugh, let's start with you. Is there any shot that, you know, one of these other countries, let's say China, they're a big GDP. Why don't they replace the dollar? Well, first and foremost, the BRICS are China. Um, everything else is insignificant. Um, even India, I think, is only, is India the size of the GDP of Russia? It's roughly 2 or 3% of, of global GDP. Um, so is China. China is the same size as the continent of Europe is approaching $18 trillion. And for sure, yeah, um, the Chinese yuan um, could be a valid competitor to the dollar. Um, but under the following circumstances, it, has, it runs an open capital account, which is say, to say that uh, as a foreigner, you're allowed uh, to invest in this property market, it's, you know, it's treasury market, you're allowed to open uh, deposits, um, it would also require um, a rule of contract law 
uh, which would be predictable and would be guarded uh, to, to be transparent and to be equitable. Um, and in opening the capital account um, and being subject to reserve, if you will, most favoured nation status, um, it is likely that China would have to accept that its currency in due time, um, you know, due time, why am I saying due time? If you were to open um, the capital account, if you were to allow Chinese citizens, um, again, to, to actually buy uh, overseas assets, um, there would be a massive exit from, from China. Why? Because it has a profoundly overvalued property market and they have a $60 trillion property market. I think the US equivalent would be $35 trillion and the US economy is substantially uh, larger. So that's $60 trillion if you could actually invest it overseas. I mean, you, you effectively you could own all of the property in the rest of the world. Um, so under the conditions that Chinese citizens are free to buy um, and, and to move their, um, their foreign exchange as they wish, and that overseas suppliers to China receiving payment, I call it red cabbage, the Chinese currency. If I'm in Brazil, Brazil presently is doing a lot of bilateral trade with China. Why? Because it sells soya beans and, and other agricultural products. And of course, uh, it has a very rich uh, raw material base. Um, there is no issue with regard to settlement. Uh, many, many countries are free and indeed are choosing to accept uh, the red cabbage and settlement for their goods and services. It's what comes next. Um, if you're sitting in San Paulo with red cabbage, you can't go to Starbucks and buy a latte. Okay, um, And like I said, you, you can't actually buy any, any financial asset in China. So it's at the margin, your red cabbage is sold for dollars and you take the sanctuary of a market which has contract law and deep liquid markets where foreigners are welcome. Keith, I want to send it your way. You have claimed that all the other paper currencies are derivatives of the U.S. dollar. And you think that no other currency could replace the dollar. There is something that could. It starts with a G and it ends with a D, has an OL in the middle. But uh, can you maybe explain why no other paper currency can overtake the dollar, for example, that you want? Yeah, my, my comment about the other currencies being dollar derivatives is that all the central banks have huge amounts of dollars um, as the reserve asset, right? So if you're a central bank, essentially it's, you have dollars as the asset and, and um, you, know, you issue uh, your local currency as the, as the liability to fund that asset. Now, you can shuffle that around and say, okay, instead of holding dollars directly, we'll hold another currency, but that other currency is also a dollar derivative. Um, so the U.S. runs, um, you know, open capital account, as you said, and uh, huge, um, generally huge trade deficits, Triffin's dilemma, right? We're supplying the rest of the world with the reserve currency, which means we have to export currency, um, or at least financial assets of some sort. And... Um, you know, all the currencies have ended up, um, you know, as a result of a lot of historical legacy, Bretton Woods, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, holding dollars is the ultimate backing of everything. And, um, you know, we had another guest on our show, Jeff Snyder, who said, you can basically say it's a dollar world and the other currencies are uh, secondary, you know, scripts like a coal mining company town script. Um, it really is a dollar world. I was going to say to confirm 
in a different way, which you said. I visited uh, China once right before COVID. In fact, it was so close that I was traveling in Australia, and they started to say that anybody who'd been in China within the last 90 days is prohibited. I actually had to look at the stamp on my passport to verify that my trip to China was more than 90 days outside that window. And, and it was, but only, only just. Um, and I met with some wealth advisors there to talk about our uh, gold deal program. I thought the Chinese might, might like the idea of a non-dollar asset, but outside, outside China. The, the wealth advisors there uh, have the same job as, as they do in the rest of the world, which is to help people understand you know, risk and time preference and in you know, what stage of the game are you at and, you know, al- you know, portfolio allocation and, and all that. But in addition, I would say their overarching um, mandate is to help people navigate the loopholes in the capital controls and sneak their money out, um, either by breaking the law or by um, skirting it narrowly. And that's that's the thing that everybody with any degree of wealth in China is attempting to do. Uh, is to get their get their get their wealth out of yuan and out of the Chinese government's purview because they don't like although the term red cabbage they don't like the red cabbage um, and they don't like that it's under the control of the Chinese government and if they say one wrong word then it's subject to um, confiscation they'd like to have wealth um, you know in a different form and outside uh, outside that control. And so, yeah, if you open the capital account, I can only imagine just how much selling there'd be by the Chinese and what would that do to the price of the yuan? Hard to predict, but surely at least a 50 to 75% drop, maybe a lot more than that. Um, and that wouldn't be an auspicious start to something that's going to be the, the alleged future um, uh, you know, world reserve currency. The other, the other thing, I just want to uh, conclude this comment on an ironic note. So... There's much ballyhooed uh, bilateral trade between Russia and India. And um, was it India or was it Russia? I think it was India said, well, we don't want to hold these useless uh, rubles. No, it was, it was the other way, Keith. No, uh, Russia. Russia had accumulated uh, rupees. 50 yards of a dollar equivalent rupees because, of course, the Indians have been uh, accepting you know, Russian embargoed oil. And, and then you can continue. Right, and, and the Russians are like, well, these rupees are useless. We don't want to hold them. And it's like, well, yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, I don't know if, if, you, if you've seen kind of the ongoing, ongoing banter. A few of us, including Brent Johnson, have talked about the, the cab driver test. Um, you know, if, can you give dollar bills to a random cab driver in some place in the world? And I had an experience not too long ago in Switzerland where, um, much to my surprise, the cabbie didn't accept credit cards. And um, I, I don't bother going and exchanging, but I had, you know, a couple of $20 bills. I just always have in case of emergency. And he was happy to take the dollar at par, uh, ironically, even though the Swiss franc was uh, whatever, six at the time or something. He was more than happy with a big smile. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, 20, a 20 franc uh, fare was, was $20. That's the world. That would not happen in rupees. That would not happen in yuan. That would not happen in uh, rubles, Brazilian real. You know, you name it. Oh, I tell you, Keith. But you you must have been going two hundred yards in that taxi if it cost you twenty bucks in Switzerland. It wasn't very far. You were correct. It was not a very far trip. 
Keith, you had a poll on your Twitter and, and we had Brent Johnson comment on it. He said, oh, I wish I'd ran this poll. Uh, the poll was, all right, which of these countries and leaders would you like to lend your money to? You can have Xi in China. You can have Modi in India. You can have Lula in Brazil. You can have Putin in Russia. Who, who do you really want to lend all your money to? Uh, and, and obviously the answer is funny because it's none of these countries. I don't want to have any of these dictators having my, uh, my currency of any sort, let alone gold. And it kind of just highlights this fact that there's a lot of talk. Oh, the BRICS gold backed currency. You know, we, we've had this field guide out how not to think about gold. We debunk all this kind of crazy talk. But at the end of the day, what rule of law, what country, what capital account is going to have the best liquid markets, best rule of law? And the answer is the United States. Um, Hugh, I want to go maybe to the second competitor, which might be the euro. And I want to coin a phrase here that I want you to steal, which is called Hendry's Law. Bad policy drives out good policy, which is obviously a joke off of the Gresham's Law, which is that bad money drives out good money. And you made this point about the Europe, uh, European currency and the euro, which is that Europe is just doing every bad policy mistake you can think of when it comes to energy policy. Uh, when it comes to obviously their their central bank policy, so Hendry's law: bad policy drives out good policy. What do you think? I'll, I'll send it to you on the euro. Um, well, it's the, the 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 wealth of Europe is largely the the northern countries um, concentrated around Germany, and and they pursue a mercantilist policy, um, where again, you know. The, this is a change, remember, tr tr the, the model of international trade, which largely is the infrastructure which determines asset prices, I believe. Um, but it changed 25 years ago with the advent of, the, of, of closed capital accounts. And it changed owing to the Asian tiger crisis of 1997-98, when overseas money was pooled um, and it led to substantial devaluations in the currency. But more importantly, it led to the eviction of kleptocracies that had controlled those economies for decades. Um, so the last 25 years is, this is a, a, a modern and very corrosive change in global affairs. Um, Europe pursues something very similar, whereby it is trading um, goods and services produced uh, in Europe. And in return, it's willing to exchange the purchase of U.S. financial assets. It is really not desperately keen to consume U.S. Um, goods and services, and therefore it runs a persistent trade surplus uh, and it reinvests its savings in the U.S. So um, Europe, and particularly Germany, works on... If Germany didn't have the euro, the Deutschmark would be considerably higher than it is today. So it's a, it's a disguised... Uh, currency devaluation, just similar to the fact that, you know, 30 years ago, China was the same size as Turkey in terms of its GDP. It was just under a trillion dollars. And they made a lot of smart capital allocations and you knew they got a bit jiggy with capitalism. And their economy is 18 trillion. And the laws of economics, which is one of uh, the pursuit and the observation of equilibrium, ex ante, you would have expected that the Chinese currency had appreciated, that Chinese citizens had become richer vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. That has not been the case. If we go back to the, in, the beginning of, um, heavens, I'm losing the name of it, the free trade agreement between Mexico, Canada, and the United States, the uh, Chinese currency devalued. 
Um, prior to that, it was trading six, and today it's trading seven spot three, and looks as if it's heading to eight. Um, that is, that that's the hack that keeps their GDP kind of linear and expanding, and it's the hack which leads to inflation in asset prices and disinflation in uh, in wages for for the real folk outside Wall Street. So to answer your question, I I don't I don't really see I I just see Europe as a modified version of what's of what's coming out of Southeast Asia, principally from uh, from China. It's all bad, but just different flavors of bad, which is kind of what I'm hearing. Keith, yeah. I want to ask you a question really quickly about this de-dollarization. We hear this all the time; it's in the media. And do you think that part of this has to do with the Western financial media, who essentially love to glorify all these kind of de-dollarization narratives? But it's only because the West and the dollar are incredibly transparent. Uh, there's tons of data. Fred is a goldmine of information, while places like China or other countries don't have this data. They're not transparent. They're incredibly opaque. And that is why all the bad things that happen to the dollar, which are much worse in other countries, are never talked about. Do you think this has to do with the type of media and obviously what we're trying to disrupt here on the podcast? Yeah, I mean, I think you made my point for me that um, anything you want to know about the U.S. financial system, the latest irregularities and how they indicted Trump, how you know, the U.S. military can't account for a trillion dollars. Every little bit of financial and non-financial mismanagement, corruption, blunders, policy blunders, you know, what did Powell do? What should he have done? Is discussed ad nauseum. Every last fact is, is you know, every bit of dirty laundry is hung out on the, uh, on the line for everybody to see. And that can give people, you know, kind of, it's not a recency bias. I'm not sure what the term for it is where you know, you're so immersed in all this data and all this news that you think you know, there's a disproportionality to it. You think, oh my God, it's, it really is that bad. And clearly the West and the US are in a descending spiral. But the question is, where are we in that descent relative to autocracies like China or Russia? And I think the answer is nowhere near, not yet anyway. Um, but people you know, blow it out of proportion. It's kind of like people read about car accidents, I'm sorry, airplane accidents, and they think I'm safer driving. And you know, they're off by a few orders of magnitude in terms of their, their risk assessment is that far off. Um, you know, you get a similar thing here. Um, you know, obviously it's not legal in Russia or China to talk anything negative about the government. I mean, that will get you arrested, disappeared to a secret police dungeon somewhere where they do unspeakable things to you for just saying, you know, negative things. And so there's a lot less negative things being said, and therefore what must be the U.S. is worse. Hugh, I want to send it your way. You've mentioned that there's pretty much three variables when it comes to GDP and GDP growth, which is productivity, population, and debt growth. Can you, first of all, explain those, those three variables and maybe discuss the U.S., China, Brazil, some other countries as to how you see those variables playing out and which of the three variables you think is the important? Sure. I mean, I mean that, that that's not my theory. That is economics. Uh, the the three uh, founding principles of where you generate economic growth. Um, and for all nations, we we know that uh, you know as, as you get wealth wealthier, like the the selfish gene within you, it doesn't have to replicate because you know uh, you are producing babies, etc. Um, you're producing less babies, forgive me, and therefore population growth uh, seems to decelerate. Um, 
the, the key to this is why productivity is not higher. I think that's the real mystery. Productivity is really not contributing much to GDP growth. Um, so I would posit the thesis that productivity is very much a function of being front-loaded by investment. There is no incentive for entrepreneurs to commit to um, capacity expansion. First of all, because capacity expansion in the continent of North America is at his historical whites. Um, why is it at historical whites? Because um, China has amassed an enormous um, surplus in manufacturing capacity domestically. The, the manufacturing capacity in China is by an order of two or three times greater than, than what a domestic market requires. Okay, So that, if you will, leeches from, from the US. Secondly, the presence of that, the presence of the undervalued exchange rate makes China not more productive, it makes it cheaper. And therefore it's conducting a beggar thy neighbor. If its labor force is cheap, then our labor force has to be cheap to compensate and to keep the thing steady. So as you make labor cheap, there's a kind of fallacy of composition. Everyone kind of wants to, every corporation wants to pay the least amount possible. Not everyone, but you could conceive of that conjecture. Um, but if I'm paying you less, collectively, you are the population of the United States and you've got less wherewithal, you've got less income to expand and purchase uh, consumer goods and, and, and other uh, goods and services within the economy. So you, we, we live in a world of, surplus savings and deficient demand and that takes away from the incentive to invest and without investment you tend to find that productivity is mediocre and economics is interesting because you can actually come up with kind of roguish what are deemed to be roguish ideas um, which actually stand up so the roguish idea is that actually if we turn around and we paid folks lots more money for their, their services, you would be paying them, you'd be paying your customers and they would be demanding your product. And therefore you would find your capacity utilization was getting tighter. You would seek to expand, you'd invest. And secondly, you would be investing because you're a greedy capitalist. You'd be going, oh my God, my labor costs, labor costs are typically two thirds of total corporate charges. And if they're running 10, 15%, you bet you're going to be investing in labor-saving productivity uh, mechanisms. It's a bit like oil. We, we, the, the asset price, in, sorry, the price inflation owing to the power of the cartel um, meant that the price was at such levels where you're incentivized to create good or bad the technology which has enabled the thrust of the, the, the green revolution, the, the decline in solar panel prices et al. The impulse comes from component cost price inflation. It brings investment, investment brings productivity. That's how I proceed. The, the tragedy is that every central bank is trying to subvert that. Every central bank's explicit policy is to prevent wage price gains. That is a folly which is leading to the impoverishment of many people. Keith, I want to send it your way. There's a lot of interesting things there. First, I do agree that, you know, higher prices, the cure to those higher prices is high prices, right? When, when a cost, let that be labor or something else, is high, that does incentivize lots of entrepreneurial efforts to 
find labor-saving devices, whether that be technology or productivity improvement. So I do agree with that. Um, but I, I want to talk about the third kind of variable to the GDP growth, which is debt. And I want you, Keith, to quickly just, what is the marginal productivity of debt? Are we actually getting more juice for the squeeze when it comes to our debt? Because it's growing exponentially. So wouldn't you hope that the GDP would follow right along, uh, right along with it? You know, marginal productivity of debt is one of those things that um, it's an old economic concept. Um, everybody who's got an economic background knows or reasonably should know. When you use a legal standard there, knows or reasonably should know about it. Um, and uh, it's not discussed much. I mean, for a while, I don't know if this is still true. If you search on that, my articles are on the top of the Google search results page, not because I'm that prominent, but because marginal productivity of debt is not discussed. So marginal productivity of debt is essentially how much fresh GDP do you get, you know, juice do you get from each new dollar of debt um, squeeze? And uh, you should want that to be flat or rising. Um, and when you listen to mainstream, you know, even folks on the fiscal conservative side, even folks on the supply side, they'll talk about, oh yeah, well, we just need pro-growth policies, we'll grow our way out of the debt. Okay, well, growing your way out of the debt would mean that marginal productivity of debt would be greater than one. That's okay, sure, the debt is growing, but, but uh, GDP is growing faster than that. And so that over time, you know, the burden of debt is lessened uh, in that theory. Um, but there's a kind of a professional malpractice. It'd almost be like if a doctor said, oh, well, you have a fever, we're going to apply leeches. And, you know, completely ignorant of the fact that leeches have been long debunked as, as any kind of curative to fever. Um, in fact, leeches probably carry with them bacteria that if they bite into you could actually cause a fever, I would imagine, let alone you know, cure one. So if you look at and you plot marginal productivity of debt, which is change in, in GDP divided by change in debt, um, what you see over a really long period of time is a fallen trend. Um, and the oldest data that I've ever been able to find goes back to around 1950. And um, you know, that time I want to say. Marginal productivity of debt was in the 60 cent range or something. It's been a while since I've looked at the graph and, you know, falling, falling, falling with in recent years, huge volatility as we've had the crisis of 2008 and then the stimulus and, you know, it kind of bangs up and down, but the, the falling trend is still there, um, which, which means that, no, you can't grow your way out of this debt problem. There's a different resolution coming and that's growth isn't going to be that resolution. Hugh, we're coming near the end of the podcast here. So I want to kind of ask you a fun rapid fire question and we'll go back between you and Keith. Uh, I've got a list of Federal Reserve chairmen and some other kind of prominent people here. I've got Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, Paul Volcker, and Jerome Powell. I'm going to start with you, Hugh. What drug or drink would the acid capitalists describe these different Fed chairmen? So let's start with Alan Greenspan. What drug or drink do you think Alan Greenspan was? How do you think of Alan Greenspan? I, I mean, I, um, it, it's it's very easy on these platforms, to, you know, to to use to reach for hypable um, and and to use um, silly terms. Um, they are public servants um, seeking seeking uh, to do the best, and and their their remuneration is is somewhat modest. Mm -hmm. um, they are not. Um, they have no understanding. None of them has a, a competent understanding of money. None of them are the five. Um, 
I know they try well. They are uh, beholden to econometrics and to models. They are beholden to the Phillips curve, which associates a relationship between um, unemployment and, and, and subsequent price, wage price inflation. Again, they are explicitly trying um, to um, destroy the livelihoods of, of ordinary folk. Um, in the elections of the 1890s, there were two elections, and William, is it William Jennings Bryan? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's get his surnames mixed mixed up. But William Jennings Bryan, you know, he 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 was a populist. He was, you know, the U.S. had been enduring a deflation uh, for almost two decades, and there was a, a very obvious and evident solution, which was an expansion of uh, of money via introducing a bimetallic standard and therefore replicating what was happening in other geographical la- uh, locations. And silver was plentiful in the United States. Um, and he and it was subs- I mean remarkably it was uh, he, he did not achieve public office and, and of course the lion in the in the Wizard of Oz represents William because he had this wonderful scary oratory but really it was the the witches of the banks of J P Morgan on the East Coast which had the power and sadly today's somewhat similar but he said you know, please don't crucify the common folk on a crucifix of gold or a crucifix of a hard money philosophy and um, all of all of the the chairmen that you cite still suffer from that dogma so sorry I, I, we're trying to do quick fire but that wasn't so quick keith i want to send it your way which is uh i i totally agree we we have uh, the Fed running econometrics. What do you think about this? Why don't they just have enough equations, enough theories, and enough PhDs? You'd think they figured out the economy by now. Well, I was going to say, first of all, the Phillips curve should have gone to the ash heap of history in the 1970s when, you know, there's supposedly this trade off between inflation and unemployment. I'm just old enough to remember in the late 70s on the nightly news, they used to quote something called the misery index which was, I think, the sum or weighted average of inflation and unemployment, both of which had reached double digits and into the teens by 1979. Um, and uh, you said, so they coined the term stagflation, which was meant to refer to the combination of you know, stagnation, which is high unemployment and high inflation. You'd think after that, you'd throw the Phillips curve out and say, okay, this thing totally doesn't work, but no, they double down on it. And they try to justificate it. And um, you know, I've I've written a lot of posts on Twitter about um, you know the monetarists and their idea that okay, if you double the money supply, you double the price level. MV equals PQ, and you know, kind of attacking that from different angles. And people say, well, you know, the demand for money changed, and and this happened, and that happened. I'm like, wait, you have this equation which you which you state as an equation as if it was the same thing as PEV equals NRT, the ideal gas equation, and you're stating this as an equation for the economy, when I point out your equation is wrong, you're saying, well, what had happened was, come on, I mean, it's an equation or it isn't. If it's an equation, it needs no uh, you know, hand-waving and justification. So the very idea that you can model people as if they're particles of an ideal gas, that they are stateless, and also without you know, consciousness, reason, or volition, um, you know, that particles of an ideal gas don't have any intentions. They don't, they're not, they're not any goals, right? They're not trying to do anything or understand their circumstance. They just bounce around according to the laws of physics, whereas people do not. And um, so the idea of an equation is, 
it's just wrongful, you know, from the get-go. And so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you in that I'm not so much blaming the man, uh, you know, whether it be Greenspan or Beninke or whoever, but blaming the idea that we have these central planners in charge and that it's possible to centrally plan us for our own good in the first place. That's the the, the real issue. And uh, the, the fact that they're not getting it right shouldn't be a surprise. Of course, they're not getting it right. There's no way for them to get it right. Um, and not to mention on top of it, they're, they don't understand um, the monetary system. They don't understand the fire with which they're they're playing anyway. So, yeah, I mean, I, Keith nailed it. Well done, well done Keith. Um, the, the, the irony, the paradox, the joie de vie is, is all of that. Um, uh, the American economy has a very, very excellent system of determining interest rates or guessing at the natural rate of interest. Uh, and it's called the, the yield curve. And it does a great public service because when the feds, which is really just, it, you know, it's like trying to appoint a new pope every six weeks of the year, why 12 people are better than thousands of people who are subject to commercial risk and are trying to hedge themselves, why they should have more wisdom is a, is a fallacy. But the fallacy is revealed periodically when they overstep the mark. You know, inversions tell the Fed, but the Fed's not listening. So the Fed, first and foremost, is the bank regulator of onshore US banks. Um, I wish we could return it to that function and, and throw in the Bagot principle that there will be times like human beings, we are bonkers. There's a, again, there's so many conceits and arrogance, but the notion that we're we're smarter than than our predecessors, I I would I would push back upon. You know, we're subject to highs and lows in terms of expectations and emotions, and so there is a need for it for a centrally pooled resource that can actually have liquidity and can buy good assets at moments of distress. Even then, I would take that away from the Fed, and I would suggest that it's operated by the Treasury. And I would try and address one of the great sins of, of the modern day, which is the profound disenfranchised population in America and elsewhere, disenfranchised in that they do not own financial assets. They are beyond their reach, which itself is a function of mercantilism. But I would ask the Treasury to impose a withholding tax on sovereign accumulation of dollar assets. With that, I would try and I would finance um, a sovereign U.S. sovereign asset fund that would stand ready to buy the stock market and other securities in moments of distress, that that fund uh, allocation to that fund would be means tested and therefore it would be owned by the disenfranchised and make our society more inclusive. Hugh, I want to ask you a final question before we go. First is... We have a lot of people on the Gold Exchange podcast. We've had Brent Johnson on. We've had, uh, obviously, Mr. Snyder on as well. So can you ask a question that I should be asking all future guests? Um, have you managed money? How long did you manage money? Um, what is your mechanism for, for dealing with um, those many, many instances when you're wrong? Yeah. Um, all of the above. Absolutely. Why, yeah. I mean, you know. Um, yeah, let's keep it short. Have you put your money where your mouth is from Hugh Hendry? Uh, Hugh, where can people find out more about acid capitalism and more Hugh Hendry? Um, so on Twitter, Hendry underscore Hugh, um, 
on YouTube, Hugh Hendry official. People be careful. There are so many scuzz balls and crypto exchanges, you know, go the SEC, let's take them out. You know, these let's regulate the trading of securities. Um, but yeah, and then I do the Asset Capitalist podcast. I'll be releasing tonight. We release typically on a Friday. Um, and we have a Patreon service. Um, Patreon members at the higher end get a 40-minute interview with me and, and various uh, group chats, etc. So Q, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Gold Exchange podcast. If you're ever in Los Angeles, we're going to have to buy a drink and have fun in St. Bart's. Thanks so much. Honey, I am always in Los Angeles. Hollywood's my favorite town. So for sure, like, you know, let's meet up. And Keith, uh, wonderful, actually. You know, it, it's, it's nice to cross swords with, you know, intelligent counterparts. So well done. Yeah, you too. I, I appreciate the chance to meet you. The drink is on me. I don't know if they'll let me pay in gold or not. Probably not. Um, oh, but uh, Probably not. But, yeah, but probably. we'll drink tequila. We'll drink tequila. Yeah, I will absolutely. drink tequila. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll be drinking tequila. And are you on St. Bart's right now? Yeah. Love it. All right. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll come out to St. Bart's in my in my travels. Hey, I'm host. I'm hosting a conference on the 21st of August. You get to stay. I'm going to be your host. Come and live in the, one of the most beautiful houses in the world. And we're going to we're going to talk macro. You know, I, you can come for a thousand bucks. It's three days. You know, and I'll I've got a concierge service, and I'll get you an Airbnb. Um, you can come. And stay with me, and, and you know that's a whale event. You know it's twenty five thousand bucks. Sorry, people, but I mean property here is preposterously expensive. Uh, and then there's a there's a Sun Club membership, which is somewhere in between. You know, ten ten thousand dollars. It's expensive, but if you if you're looking to hang out with some of the smartest people and enjoy one of the most beautiful places in the world, I think it's worth the price. Everyone should go see Hugh on St. Bart's. Hugh, thanks so much, and. Uh... We'll have to we'll have to come down there and get a little tan going. Get monetary metals uh, an office down in, in St. Bart's, Keith. What do you think? Absolutely. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions. And our gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.